0: Good evening and welcome to Slam the Gavel, the show that tells it all regarding family court, other court issues, as well as CPS. I'm your host, Mary Ann Petrie. Patriots Against CPS Corruption invites you to attend our march for Texas children. DFPS has failed the families of Texas. The Texas Special Committee on DFPS has also failed the children. Time to make our voices heard. Surround yourself with those on the same mission as you. Join us on the March for Our Children, September 21st, starting at 1 p.m. at 701 West 51st Street, Austin, Texas, 78751. I have a brand new guest on. I have Jay Rosenthal. He is a child welfare consultant and a former Child Protective Service CPS investigator. He founded CPS Protect Consulting Services, a first-of-its-kind consulting firm designed to help families prepare for and navigate CPS investigations very strategically. So I welcome you to the show, Jay. And you know, how did you begin to start this uh, CPS Protect Consulting Services?
1: Thank you, Marianne, for having me. Happy to be here. So CPS Protect Consulting Services is, is the product of my experience working as a CPS investigator. We help families prepare for and navigate CPS investigations. Now, there are plenty of attorneys out there that specialize uh, in CPS cases. However, attorneys, t- although they tend to know the law very well, they tend to be weaker in the area of how child welfare investigations themselves are conducted in practice. That's where we come in. Mm -hmm. We've done these investigations ourselves over and over again. We know what CPS is looking for when they knock on your door. And we help our clients hedge against it before they even show up. Or if they have already shown up, we help mitigate any potential damage and navigate the minefield that is a CPS investigation. Because CPS investigations are so opaque and people are, for obvious reasons, very scared when cps shows up it's a, one of the most frightening experiences a parent can endure it's very difficult to know what to do should you let mm-hmm. somebody in should you not should you sign a consent form so that cps can review your child's medical records or not uh what are they looking for uh, what does child protective services consider a good home how do they define what a good parent is and in my experience, as a CPS investigator in New York, I saw that this really was not a uh, was not a great way to do things, because if parents own, uh, no child comes with a manual, mm-hmm. and if you only go based on the experience that you have as a parent, using your values, if the government has different values, you're in a lot of trouble.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I started at Child Protective uh, Services doing uh, doing investigations shortly before the COVID-19 pandemic, and it didn't take me long to see that there were genuine issues with how Child Protective Services currently operates today. when you uh, when you look at just how high the caseloads are
2: Mm -hmm.
1: how ambiguous a lot of the definitions are and when you compare the rights that you have and in fact you're informed that you have as opposed to when you're being tried for something in criminal court you start to see that That ambiguity creates a lot of discretion. Child Protective Services agencies uh, that do these investigations now are all government agencies. They are agencies of the executive branch, meaning they're not subject necessarily to the same legislative oversight that you see in the criminal court. This creates some really big issues. So after a while of seeing how Child Protective Services investigations became very political, whether it's the contracts that are signed between uh, the government and foster care agencies or prevention services agencies, or it's the amount of paperwork that's done uh, over and over again that's required that makes it very tedious, There, there was clearly a lot at issue. Now, when you are in a helping profession and you get to the point where you start asking yourself, what am I actually doing here? Mm-hmm. Because you're not making millions doing investigations in child welfare. So if you don't feel like you're helping families and that's what you were supposed to be doing, then what are you actually doing? And when I started asking myself that question, I realized there was a serious problem. Child Protective Services has the resources of the government, millions in funding. And yet, somehow, I didn't see myself helping families the way that you would assume. So... I had three options. I could continue working for the government. I could leave child welfare entirely and child welfare was my I felt was my calling. I didn't really want to go anywhere. Or I could create what I believed was needed in child welfare. And so I gave up my salary, I gave up my pension, and I started CPS Protect. I have no idea where it will take me, I only know where it has taken me so far, and I don't regret it.
0: Well, that must have. I managed. Oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that must have been a difficult decision to make.
1: Oh, it certainly was. Most entre- anyone who goes into entrepreneurship, who starts their own business, has to make this decision, and. It is a very difficult one because having a salary, having a pension, this is a, this is a safety net. This is something that's consistent. All of a sudden, that's gone. But when you have something like child protective services and you come to understand it so intimately from the inside, the drive to do the right thing actually overpowers some of that reason.
2: Now, as I said earlier, there are,
1: because CPS investigations are particularly opaque, there's a lot that families don't actually understand going into it, making it very easy to step in a minefield, say the wrong thing, not say the wrong thing, and end up in a lot of trouble.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: What a lot of people don't realize is When you're conducting these investigations, CPS investigators actually have qualified immunity. And for testimony in court, they actually have, in most cases, absolute immunity. Now, the rationale for this is that you can only make decisions about how to act or when to act on a case based on the information that you have at the time. And if something is time sensitive, you don't wanna go and penalize the investigators. Well, that's how it's supposed to work. That's not really how it works. So it is, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't call it abuse, but I would say that if you have an investigator who's going, who's going into a home, and you are much more likely to lose your livelihood, lose your job, lose your pension, not be able to support your family, if you don't act and you're wrong. Then, if you do act and you're wrong, then you are going to you are more likely if you see something more innocuous to act, and by act I mean put in, put prevention services in place or. Remove a child and place them in kinship or foster care, you are more likely to act than to not because it is safer for you. And that is a culture that, at least in the United States, is universal in child protective services. So when people who get their who have their children removed actually see it as An innocuous reason. Well, if CPS is looking at it from a risk-averse perspective, and they and they identify what they determine to be a safety concern, they are more compelled to act, and this is why this is more of an issue. Hmm. And to show the gravity of that, let's take a look at some statistics. So, according to a 10-year longitudinal study that was published in the American Journal of Public Health back in 2017, 37.4% of all children in the United States experienced a Child Protective Services investigation prior to the age of 18. That's almost four in every 10 children. Let's go a little further. There are approximately 61 million families with minor children in the United States. And according to a report in August 2019 from the Administration for Children and Families, that's the Federal Child Welfare Agency, mm-hmm. 483,283 children were separated from their families by child welfare agencies in the United States. Let's sink in. We're talking 483,283 children. Using these statistics, We can can conclude that one in every 139 families in the United States has had their child removed by a child welfare agency. These are staggering, astonishing numbers that beg the question, are parents really that bad at parenting? Keep in mind, this doesn't include the number of substantiated cases each year, which is even higher. Or the number of families subjected to cases of any kind of outcome, even unsubstantiated. On top of that, the one in 139 families mark assumes that every family only has one child. So it is more likely than not, I would bet on it,
2: that the rate of removal is even higher. So if the numbers really are that high, It begs the question, is it always that necessary? And if not, why? And if we want to answer that question, we have to look at the risk-averse culture. Of those removals,
1: 84% of them are unrelated to physical harm of any kind. That means they're not sexual abuse, they're not physical abuse. This is not kids that are fought, that are being pushed down the stairs. This is the, in the broad arena of neglect. It might be a dirty home. It might be a lack of supervision. It might be that they're not attending school and they're truant, and the parent doesn't have control of the child. These it's cases in these categories. That make that st- that
2: make that st- statistic a reality.
0: What about Jay? What about false allegations? You know, when you have a parent constantly calling in multiple times.
1: Yeah, those are a huge problem because there are a substantial amount of states that allow anonymous reporting. All states allow uh, confidential reporting for, uh, for child abuse and neglect. So let's say you call the child abuse hotline in your state. Uh, CPS is required to keep that, uh, keep your identity confidential. Some states actually allow for anonymous reporting where you actually don't have to leave any identifying information and they don't record any. This allows, uh, this allows for blatant abuse of the system in those states and typically a higher rate of reporting in those states. The rationale for it is that anybody who might report child abuse in good faith but wouldn't, but wouldn't if they feared retaliation, would be more likely to report if they didn't have to leave their information. However, I have seen so so much in blatantly false reports coming out. I remember a case that I had where in the span of six weeks, there were five calls and I believe it came from a landlord. There were five calls on this one family, and it really, there was nothing actually going on. What it looked like to me was this landlord just wanted the tenant out and was using CPS to get it. And the truth is, it's a waste of time for CPS, and it hassles a family. The only recourse that a family actually has in a circumstance like that is to file a police report uh, alleging a malicious uh, uh, alleging that there is malicious reporting to child protective services because you are only you are only protected you are only reporting legally if you report in good faith meaning you genuinely believe that something might be going on if you are doing it because you don't like somebody, you want somebody out, you are angry at them, there is a custody dispute, that is illegal. However, to get a judge to actually unseal the name of a reporter requires an astronomically high burden of proof. So you have to make sure that not only do you have substantial evidence, but that you have substantial evidence that the person that you're alleging Made the anonymous report. Uh, sorry, made, excuse me, made the malicious report. If it is an anonymous report, they're not going to have anything to unseal. But if it's a confidential report, they will. But if you have text messages, if you have emails, if you have recordings that you can provide that demonstrate that this person had a vendetta and made this report, then it may get unsealed. But anything short of that, you won't. And if you're in a state like New York that allows anonymous reporting, even if you have all that, if they don't have any information to unseal, it's going to be for nothing. (laughs) There is no recourse.
0: you've got these parents that are in these custody disputes, like you said, uh, constantly using CPS as a tool so that they can gain custody of a child.
1: Absolutely. Uh, CPS has the mindset of whatever benefits the child. So let's say they're evaluating custody. Well, whoever is available the most to supervise the child is going to uh, is is usually going to be the primary parent. And let's say you go with a traditional household. But let's say the uh, let's say the father is uh, works full time and the mother either works part time or stays at home or has more flexible work hours. Well, CPS is going to see. Well, the mother is around more, available more. So her contributions are going to be valued more. If you have a stay-at-home father, the father is going to be more valued there. But they don't see what... They only look at who's going to be supervising the child and who's going to be providing care. They're not looking at what kind of care and what kind of role somebody is playing. So if uh, if you have a working mother and a stay-at-home father for example the stay-at-home father is more likely to get the custody or at least be the primary parent mm-hmm. and however when cps is called is called and something is alleged well you have another problem entirely because that can give somebody leverage to say, the other is an unfit parent, I want full custody. And then you have one parent with full custody and the other with none. Ultimately, the, the, ultimately, the biggest loser is the child. Mm-hmm. If you look at the research into, uh, into success from childhood later, uh, to later in life, you see that those that are in two-parent homes tend to have a higher rate of success, uh, a higher rate, uh, a a lower rate uh, uh, of prison, and they tend to achieve a higher income level on average. That's not to say that children of divorced parents aren't successful. Many are. But... From a general standpoint, if you are ostracizing a parent and kicking them out of the home, it does not make it better for the child. However, CPS is only looking at what the government defines it as. And that's, a, that's an important thing to keep in mind is for example let's say we're talking about how a child is fed the government uses this uh uses the what they call the minimum standard of care for this so the minimum standard of care for nourishment would be you are providing enough food to uh and nutrition to to sustain the child you don't have to shop at trader joe's you can feed, you can buy Happy Meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner and still meet the minimum standard of care. Then again, if the child is diabetic and you're still feeding them breakfast, lunch, and dinner in Happy Meals, that may be considered medical neglect. But if you don't know the minimum standard of care in every respect and you're not preparing for that, then CPS is going to see that and that again goes back to liability if we don't take action there is more risk to us than if we do so we need to demonstrate that we're doing something
0: now there's a lot of advocates that are wanting child welfare reform and you know Some people say it should just be abolished. What are your thoughts on abolishment?
1: I don't think that abolition is the answer simply because in my time in child protective services, I did see people who genuinely went after uh, uh, and treated terribly the most vulnerable of our population, our children. in ways that are extraordinarily horrific that i would never recommend someone here after eating a meal it really is some of this stuff is absolutely horrific but clearly child welfare as it stands is not doing job that it should Mm Advocates, I think, who are looking for reform often shoot themselves in the foot. And the reason is CPS is is one of very few fields that is, it has the expectation of operating without flaw. And what I mean by that is if you look every time CPS, fails to act, and something happens to a child, say a child dies, there is outrage in the media, there's outrage in the public, and understandably so. However, we often forget that it is the appointed bureaucrats and elected political officials that have to respond to this. Because if we don't like what they're doing, we're going to the elected officials who appoint the bureaucrats who run these child welfare agencies are not going to win election next time. So they have to take action, and they tend to take action on what they have control over, and what they what they have control over is CPS, and the only way that they can take an action to try and prevent something like that from happening again is quite simply to give CPS more power and authority. Now, the problem there is CPS power and authority is in direct opposition to parental rights. So we have advocates on one hand, understandably outraged about issues when CPS fails to do its job. Now, whether it's Due to its own negligence, or it's because they did what they could with the authority they had, but were unable to. That depends on the case. You might see some where, when you visit, everything looks fine. The children are not looking at the parents in fear. Uh, you call you call the doctor. The doctor says, "I haven't seen any signs of child abuse and neglect, but I haven't seen the seen the child in a couple years, and you don't really have enough information to." Uh, Supporting the allegations to actually act and some uh, unfortunately something happens Well That brings us to the point that If you want to preserve your parental rights Unfortunately, you have to accept that There are going to be fringe cases where CPS is not going to have the power or the authority to act in a timely manner and get the information that's needed uh, to, uh, to actually protect the, child, uh, the children in that family, there are going to be some that are going to fall victim to this mm-hmm. if we are to preserve our parental rights. I don't have the answer to what the right balance is for parental rights and CPS's authority. I don't know anybody who does yet, but if we keep trying to hold CPS to the standard that you can't make a mistake, and at the same time demand protection for our parental rights, the political political officials who respond to these gripes that we have are going to keep giving CPS more power and authority. We have to decide what we want as a society or this will continue in a loop. There's just no other way around it. It, it, It's not fun to talk about. It's not, uh, you know, it's not something anybody wants to think about. But if we do want to inflict change here, we have to figure this out. And double down on it. Policy is designed to benefit most, not all. There's always going to be a minority that are not benefited by whatever broad spectrum policy is put in place. We cannot have our cake and eat it too.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: it seems parents are they're like helpless Um, when these caseworkers come into your home you know some people say don't let them in let me ask you that should they let them in or no
1: well what I tend to recommend is that they don't let them in right away they if they have to see the children, you can bring them to the door to, you know, just make sure that they're safe. Uh, you know, ask, have them ask a couple sentences, a couple questions. That's fine. Uh, and schedule for them to uh, say, basically, that this is not a good time. For example, mm-hmm. we're having dinner. Uh, can you come by tomorrow at such and such a time? This gives you a little time to digest what's going on. It gives you a little time if you wanted, uh, you know, for example, uh, to call C- CPS for tech. They're legal counsel or both. You would have the opportunity to do that. And it also, because they are, ma- they by mandate, they have to actually check the children and see that they're safe. If you just blatantly refuse for a family to... Uh, it, it, if you blatantly just refuse for them to see the children, eventually they're going to have to go to court and get an entry order. Mm-hmm. And once they're in court, that can prolong things. It can increase the anxiety and the stress that you feel. Uh, if you've ever been through a CPS investigation, uh, I don't think you ever you slept much for the duration of it, at least not well. And. The idea is to get CPS in and out of of your life as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. So you want to have the opportunity to strategically get through an investigation and be able to digest it. But at the same time, you'd rather it not end up in court. And so you have to actually balance CPS's intrusion with the potential of it going to court and make sure that you maintain the most amount of control. Because if you refuse and it and that entry order comes in, it may not be at your discretion whether or not those children get interviewed alone. That may be included in the order that they're able to interview them alone. So you lose power if you go too hard. Hmm. But if you just let them in, let them in and you're not prepared, you're anxious, The whole nine yards, you could end up divulging a lot more than you intend to. And it could be a very small thing, and it could have very serious, profound, prolonged consequences.
0: You know, shouldn't caseworkers be interviewing all parties? Um, say Say if this is, you know, during a custody dispute. You know, they get called and they'll interview the the well. We'll say the the mother's side, and then they don't interview the father's side. <laughs> I mean, is that that's a con- collusion issue?
1: I think that there are some in child protective services that are not doing the investigations with anything close to resembling integrity mm-hmm. in my experience efforts were always made to interview all parties to the investigation if there if on the report it only listed for example the mother's side of the family mm-hmm. and there was no father listed and i had no contact how am i supposed to interview the father mm-hmm. that because, that becomes an issue there i can only you can only go based on the information that you have at at any given time so the less information the, the less information i have the less i have to go on mm-hmm. it, that can be a blessing and a curse because it could be that there is some crucial information that i need to make an unsubstantiated determination because without it, things look, look more like the allegations are true, but the more information I have, the more I have to rationalize whatever determination I, I end up making. Uh, And when I say, I, I don't mean myself as, you know, as the investigator back when I, back when I was doing investigations, because you didn't make those unilateral decisions. I mean CPS as a whole because there are multiple stakeholders that will review essentially in the essence of redundancy to hedge against somebody having a particular bias. Now, again, did it always go as intended? No, but the intention there is good. The problem is government tends not to handle this stuff very well uh when you people seem to think that because child welfare has very high stakes you're dealing with children you're dealing with families that it somehow should operate with a higher level of integrity than any other government agency uh unfortunately in my experience you know you have the same level of incompetence same level of uh just um essentially it's like waiting online at the DMV they're not they're not moving you along any faster you've got the same bureaucratic uh issues you've got the same you've got the same redundancies and so ultimately it's just cps has a different subject but it's no different than the dmv or the irs if you've ever tried to correct something on your taxes and been on the phone been on the phone with them and had an issue or been online to review your uh, to renew your driver's license that really is the same culture it amazes me that We seem to think that CPS, even though it's a government agency, is going to be so different. It's really not. If you're talking about what really good child welfare reform would look like, a lot of activists target Title IV-E funding. Mm -hmm. And I think in some respect they're right, but they get the target wrong. The reasoning for this is that Title iv e of the Social Security Act distributes funding per child or per case for prevention services and foster care reimbursement to the states. Now, the, the activists and the advocates tend to say, well, CPS is getting paid to, remo- paid to remove children. And they tend to target who they know, which are the frontline workers and their supervisors and managers, those much closer to the front lines. And that's a a mistake because they don't actually get paid more for that. Where they are correct is that most states contract out foster care and prevention services to private nonprofit agencies. Now, these are contracted by CPS. These are very lucrative, expensive contracts, and because CPS, child welfare, these child welfare agencies are conducted by the government, these contracts are, in essence, political. When that happens, the agencies that get these contracts tend to be friends of the officials that are signing the contracts and the way that these contracts are paid for is through reimbursement of the federal government by uh through title IV-E. i remember i would refer clients to instead of prevent services to equivalent what we called cbo's community-based organizations so these should be clinics uh or private practices not affiliated with uh not under contract with cps which were just fine. And I'd get flack for it. And the reason was the funding. However, I didn't receive any of that. But policy encouraged us to refer to prevention services and encouraged us to, uh, obviously, when there was a removal, it was a foster care agency. But This was how these lucrative contracts were funded. So the issue is really at the top, how the policy is being executed to fund these political contracts that are signed independent of the quality of the service. And I think that's an important thing to note: is if you're going to go, if you're going to advocate and going to go for the right reform. You have to understand what you're going after. And it's completely understandable that this would not necessarily be something that a lot of people would understand because this is not something a lot of people look that deeply into. And it's not exactly advertised. It's very easy to miss, but when you miss small things like this, it makes it much harder to tell whether the reform that child welfare is putting in place is actually a good thing or not. One thing that we're seeing that started in New York under the, uh, what they call the FAR track, Family Assessment Response, is an alternative track for uh, for, for Child Protective Services investigations that focuses more on referring to services And does not come up with a determination. If it's not something where a child might be in immediate or impending danger of serious harm, for example, and it's just that maybe they lost their food stamps or their, you know, or the child is, you know, has mental illness and is particularly violent and it's a little difficult in the home. Things like that. Now, that's been hailed as great reform. And there are a lot of states now that are, uh, are engaging in this alternative track. But prevention services are typically in-home services. And when they're contracted by Child Protective Services, what happens is instead of removing the child from the home, the government is essentially moving in and telling you how to run your home, which is almost as bad. But it, because it's not being looked at like this in the public eye. It's not raising a lot of ire. It's it's really bait and switch. People don't like removals, so let's move in instead and tell you how to parent. Mm -hmm. Keep in mind, these are also mandated reporters that are going to be in the home who every little thing, if they do see it, they may report and you may end up with another investigation. Now, are they more likely than someone at a community-based organization to report? That's really tough to quantify because there are so many different agencies. There's so many different circumstances, so many different experience levels. You could, you could say that they might be more likely to, I don't have any data on that. And I don't know of any data that's been recorded on that so i can't say for certain either way but i do know that if we're talking about parental rights and privacy i do think that it's concerning that prevent uh, that prevention services that cps contracted services under the family first prevention services act are taking precedence over equivalent community based organizations and families ability to pick their own equivalent services.
0: You know because people well that I have interviewed they've said, you know, you don't want the government in your home. <laughs> That's the last thing you want.
1: <clears throat> Absolutely. Because as a, you know, as I said, the gov- the government has its own definition of what a good parent is and what a good mm-hmm. home makes and it may not be yours. And what you may be doing may not necessarily be wrong, and it may not necessarily be bad, but if it's bad in the government's eyes, then there are consequences. Why? Parenting is supposed to be a journey. Nobody is supposed to have all the answers in the beginning. As my. Uh, as my mom used to say, I wasn't born with a manual. Mm-hmm. I didn't come with an instruction book. So the idea that CPS comes into the home, and has all the, whether via prevention services or directly in an investigation, and has all the answers, is, it seems a little cynical to me. Because in parenting, there are always going to, there are always going to be mistakes. You're going to do your best. assuming you're most parents, I I assume most parents have good intentions. Uh, Most parents, they're going to make some mistakes, but they're going to do the right thing. And they're going to do their best for their children. So why do we have a nanny sitting there saying, we have all the answers, we notice that you're doing something wrong, and we're going to penalize you for it? there comes a point where you can do that and if you go back to the history of the very first child protective service uh the new york society for the prevention of cruelty to children founded in 1875 you see a very different environment you see that cases were handled very differently these were uh, the the new york society for the prevention of cruelty to children was actually founded by the founder of the ASPCA, the American Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and the ASPCA's legal counsel. By 1925, there were over 400 of these societies for the prevention of cruelty to children in the United States doing these investigations. Not everything they did was great back then. Remember, this was pre-civil rights, so it's not as if they were perfect, but in the 1960s, the family and juvenile courts were invented. Uh, these societies for the prevention of cruelty to children, the network was starting to falter. Some of these societies were closing due to lack of funding or lack of personnel. And another major uh, event occurred, which was custodial abuse and neglect were decriminalized. And that's why CPS handles these investigations outside of criminal court. The determinations are made by CPS. And depending on the state, cases are adjudicated in either criminal court, uh, sorry, excuse me, uh, family court or juvenile court, not criminal court. They also tend to go by the fair preponderance of the evidence, which is, is it more likely than not than the allegations are true? Criminal court uses the clear and convincing evidence standard, what most people know better as beyond a reasonable doubt. So, what happens is when you take it out of the criminal court, there's a lot more discretion and you have a lot less rights to defend yourself. You don't have the right to confront your accuser. You don't have the, you don't, you have a lower standard, a lower burden of proof. And in the family or juvenile court, what they're really looking at is can we reunify? And if not, we're going to pursue parental rights. It's not really are you guilty or not. That's done unilaterally by CPS really as a civil investigation. So I think if you're talking about reform, we need strong benefactors in our communities to take back control, reintroduce these societies for the prevention of cruelty to children to do these investigations. We need to decriminalize, we need to recriminalize custodial abuse and neglect to instill those rights and significantly limit the scope of the definition of neglect in particular. I think if you ask, based on what CPS uses as its definitions, if you ask 100 people what neglect is, you're not gonna get 99 people agreeing that everything that CPS says is neglect is neglect. I think you need to look and see what is truly universally understood as neglect. Abuse is a lot more straightforward. But neglect is an area that has expanded substantially. For example, let's talk educational neglect. That is under child welfare purview in 24 states. And basically, if your child has a bunch of unexcused absences or is perennially absent, from school, for whatever reason, that can be a reason a reason for a mandated reporter, uh, you know, at school to file a report with CPS. Now, that can be anything or nothing. The whole reason behind the educational neglect uh, allegation is that, in cases of truly egregious abuse. You're talking sexual abuse. You're talking physical abuse, uh, severe isolation, starvation. The things that would horrify us, or should I say most of society. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the very first sign of that is not going to school consistently. So it's a smoking gun. But if you report that every single time, the amount of involvement that CPS is gonna have, is gonna be extraordinarily high because it astronomically increases the amount of reports that mandated reporters at schools have to make.
0: And what if, you know, they think it's um, educational neglect, and the parent just wants to keep the kid home because that they, they just don't feel good. The kiddo doesn't feel good, whatever. You know. Well, um, it- Well,
1: excused absences are one thing. That should not be an issue. I have seen kids who have gone to homeschool or been transferred to another school and then maybe the public school doesn't uh, doesn't take them off the roster and keeps marking them absent. And that can end up uh, creating a report. I have seen some boneheaded circumstances like that resulting in cases. But if there are if the child is sick and there are doctor's notes, that would not be considered an unexcused absence or an unexplained absence. And I think that's an important distinction to make. Granted, are there, may there be some cases where that was not documented by the school or there was someone who at the school just didn't like the family and made a malicious report. Yes, I'm sure there are there are cases like that. But in my experience, that is not the majority. Again, with mandated reporters, by law, they are required to make these reports, even if it is something frivolous.
0: So I I don't know if you know the statistics on the the frivolous reporting, uh, like, like the false allegations that... You know, once these are called in and you find out that they're false, do you happen to know anything about the statistics on those?
1: Well, that's, real, that's really difficult to say because the amount of false allegations that are actually made that are labeled as false, remember, they will have had to have had, had to have compiled enough evidence and made a case that this is actually a false allegation. In order for it to be documented as such, so the amount of cases that actually reach that are very, very small. The amount of cases that I would define define as made made in bad faith, because anything that's made in good faith, even if it's you know if someone believes that what you're doing is neglect, and they genuinely believe that they're making the report honestly from how they see it. That is legal, whether or not CPS, whatever determination CPS makes is independent of that. But if you're talking about a malicious report, the amount of malicious reports clearly made in bad faith, I think what what I can tell you for certain is you're going to see a much higher amount of those reports in states that allow for anonymous reporting, not just confidential. But CPS has never actually... Done the legwork on these cases that look like that look ridiculous but are not classified as having been made in bad faith, so it's very difficult to tell. But what I can say is, based on the statistics on removals and cases that we talked about before, there has to be a lot, it it, it has to be. I would say that it's not the majority of reports, mm-hmm. but I wouldn't say it's a small number because I don't remember the exact number, but I remember in a year, there's something like 3 million investigations done nationwide. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I can say is in the five boroughs of New York City, there are about fifty-five to 60,000 investigations performed every year. And that's just in the five
2: boroughs of New York City.
0: Now, you know, when people are indicated, they've got to go through a CPS hearing with a CPS judge in order to become exonerated so they can go back to their jobs to work with kids. I don't know if every state is different on that, uh, but I noticed some parents they don't know what to do, and that isn't done within a period of time. You know, uh, what 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 do those people do? I mean, I was lucky. I had an attorney that said, "Oh, okay, you've been indicated. We've got to file this to you know get this in motion so you can go before a CPS judge and get clear of this." So. You won't lose your job as a registered nurse, right?
1: Well, for me, I'm a strong believer in being prepared before CPS even arrives at your door. That's one of the reasons mm-hmm. I I started CPS Protect. Is if you can be prepared, if you know that if you know the conditions that make you vulnerable, and you resolve those conditions before they even show up, it makes it a lot easier to avoid even getting to that point. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately. That is not the norm nowadays. So when you do get to that point, you do need a good attorney to go in front of uh, to go there. You need to comb through, you need to make sure that you read up on policy and that you make sure if you can find a technicality where they went wrong,
2: a determination can be overturned on that alone. But you need to find that technicality. But if you're not
1: looking, if you're not if you're not looking right now, or if you're not getting help right now and preparing, when you're in the middle of a CPS investigation, the emotions are flying. You're not thinking strategically, you're not thinking entirely clearly. No one is.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So the idea that you are going to be able to think as clearly as you do on your, on your most perfect day. When you're dealing with all this Mm -hmm. is a joke. Mm -hmm. No human being is that strong and that detached from their own emotion. It is part of the human condition. And it's one of the reasons that even this, even the smartest and most confident people, when they're in a CPS investigation, they make mistakes and step on is, is step on mine after mine that ends up getting them a substantiated case where they might not have one otherwise. Mm-hmm. I've seen this repeatedly, it, it, because. When a, when a CPS worker, uh, when a CPS investigator shows up at your door without saying a word, just flashing their badge, what they're saying is, hi, someone sa- uh, someone told uh, told the government you're a bad parent and I'm here to find out why. May I come in? Hm. If that isn't the biggest blow to someone's ego, someone's character, someone's
2: self-esteem, I don't know what it is.
0: And then, you know, I, I won't keep us too long, but, you know, these caseworkers also seem to overstep their bounds when people don't know what they're doing and they let them in. And this caseworkers, you know, she's opening up the refrigerators and then she's sitting you down and says, sign this. And you don't even know what you're signing. There's like no writing above that. It just says signature you're like signing a blank piece of paper and you know, you're so distraught because they've come into your house and you know, sometimes they start screaming at these parents.
1: There are, so with, with CPS investigators, one of the things that makes them burn out that's not often talked about they, they talk a lot about, about the caseloads and about the fact that what you're doing is difficult, but you have to operate with a very narrow range of empathy.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Because if you have too much empathy, you will collapse under the weight of your own emotion and the case will fall apart. And if you have too little, you will not connect with that family. You will not be able to establish any sort of connection. And to be able to compartmentalize that and do so for a sustained period of time is extraordinarily difficult to do. It is extremely emotionally taxing. What if you have to go home to your own family or your spouse and they want you to open up? You have to actually compartmentalize this to the workplace and i mean granted where i did investigations i did them in some of the highest crime neighborhoods in new york city so there was i would literally wish my colleagues uh, you know and you know and they would wish me when we were going out don't get shot mm-hmm. because there were there was a lot of shooting there was a lot of gun violence and We would go out. I've had hang-up calls. I've had death threats. I've been called every name in the book at least several times. Usually each day back when I did investigations before lunch. (laughs) So it 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 is very taxing. There are a lot of people who couldn't handle it. You may have seen people very close to burning out. Uh, I mean, I did the investig I did investigations for two years. You know, I see a lot of. Uh, you know a lot of investigators who can't make it six months three months because it really is the hours are very long it is you know for the pay, it is not great uh it is very difficult to handle the emotion so when you're when you're going through all that, I'm not excusing that behavior. I never yelled at a client, not once, but it is a very difficult and emotionally taxing thing to do. Now, when it comes to the signatures, I've never actually seen it matter. The, you know, CPS may note that they you know, that you refuse to sign a service plan or a safety plan, but as long as you're implementing it, I haven't seen it sway CPS one way or the other. That doesn't mean that it never has in any circumstance, but in many circumstances, it's really a formality. Hmm. Granted, Granted, a formality with potential consequences if you do sign and don't follow through, but a formality.
0: Well, that is just, um, it's just, it's just interesting because parents don't know what they're doing <laughs> when, you know, CPS comes to the door. It's um, a broken system. W- would you agree?
1: I agree that it's broken in the sense that when the government decided to get involved in doing it, they really went and Destroyed it. I think that I think once it became once it became a political matter, it became an issue because if you look at, uh, if you look at the way political parties perceive CPS, they like it when it favors how they believe children should be raised, and they don't when it doesn't. CPS for the most part is regulated at the state level, so all you have to do is look at the different sta- uh, different states, and see that. And that really is an issue because as soon as, you know, as a state might flip, then people stop caring about it.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The people, the politicians that did care about it before all of a sudden
2: don't. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. Well, I don't want to keep you on too long. I, I think I've kept you on long enough, but I'd, I'd like to have you back on absolutely
1: Um, it's been my pleasure
0: oh definitely i will put all your contact information in the podcast notes okay is there anything else
1: go ahead absolutely what i would say is if you are concerned about child protective services and you do want to plan uh you should contact uh, us at cps Protect consulting services uh, we, might be, uh, we might be able to help. Uh, you can visit us on, on the web at cpsprotect.com or uh, call us by phone if that makes you feel more comfortable at 844-633-KIDS. That's 844-633-5437.
0: Oh, that's excellent. Thank you so much for coming on the show
1: my pleasure
0: okay uh don't jump off slam the gavels a podcast to help the public understand what really goes on in these family courtrooms i'm your host marianne petri author of dismantling family court corruption why taking the kids was not enough and cry out for justice poems of truth please join us again here with jay rosenthal in the future and other exciting guests thank you again jay
1: my pleasure